0: Hello, wonderful people. Welcome back. My guest today is Sven Nyholm. He's an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at the Eindhoven University of Technology. And we are talking about whether sex robots and self-driving cars are ethical. Robots are all around us. They perform actions, make decisions, collaborate with humans, be our friends, perhaps fall in love and potentially harm us. What does this mean for our relationship to them and with them? Expect to learn why robots might need to have rights, whether it's ethical for robots to be sex slaves, why self-driving cars are being programmed to drive with human mistakes built in, who is responsible if a self-driving car kills someone, and much more. Being honest, I've thought long and hard about so many of the questions that I got to bring up with Sven today. I find ethics, particularly around emerging technologies, so fascinating and i really hope that you enjoy it as well i'm going to put a warning out there we do get into some discussions around child sex robots and the ethics of that if that is the sort of topic which is going to make you uncomfortable please go and enjoy one of the other 286 episodes which are available on the show i thought i would put that out there it's a fascinating and slightly uncomfortable conversation to have it really challenges our principles around what does it mean to have sex can we Divorce the act of sex from the meaning behind it. Uh, I would really be interested to hear what you think. Leave a comment on the YouTube channel or just get at me at chriswillx. Also, please don't forget to press subscribe. It is the best way that you can support this show. Not only does it mean that I continue to find bigger and better guests to deliver to you, but it creates this family of curious, radically sensible humans all of whom are improving themselves by having conversations with fascinating people. So open your podcast app and press that subscribe button. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof They will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter c, letter d, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. All right, quick maths the less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite Demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com/slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything. And there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Sven Nyholm. Sven Nyholm, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to have you here, man. Why is the relationship between humans and robots interesting?
1: Oh, okay. Um, Well, uh, it's interesting for a bunch of different reasons. I mean, one reason is that people are, in a certain sense, not well prepared to deal with or respond to robots. Because... uh, our brains, our psychology uh, developed before we had any robots, before we had any AI. Uh, I mean, it developed during human evolution for hundreds of thousands of years. And then suddenly we have this enormous jump in technological development. And now we have, we have robots, we have AI, we have all sorts of uh, interesting technology. And, but we're responding to it with the brains The human psychology that developed during this long time so that sometimes means that we respond to things that look or act like humans which some robots do sometimes in humorous ways sometimes in ways that might be dangerous for us uh, but very often in fascinating ways and so that's that's one good reason i think to to think about the relationship between humans and robots
0: so our current mental makeup is unsuited to interacting with robots that's the basic sort of foundation
1: yeah, I mean, so we're basically primed to uh, anything that moves seemingly on its own accord uh, in an s- apparently intelligent way. Uh, our brains will think, okay, this is, a, this is some sort of agent. Uh, it's an animal, it's a person, and uh, our s- sort of human social attitudes are triggered. I mean, this can happen at the same time as we're thinking to ourselves, you know, it's just a robot, it's just a machine, it doesn't have any feelings, uh, doesn't like me or dislike me, but nevertheless, emotionally we respond to the entity as if it's, you know, another person. I mean, it, not all all of the time, but uh, uh, I mean, the interesting thing is that this is not just true of uh, lay people, but also experts. They talk about robots as if they have a mind, as if they have desires, beliefs. Uh, and people will say about a self-driving car, for example, I, I'm thinking of a self-driving car as a kind of robot that it wants to go left or right. It has to decide what to do. Uh, so we have this tendency to uh, anthropomorphize, as people say. I mean, so attribute human-like qualities to robots, to technologies.
0: Well, I mean, uh, you, you hear people, even before robots, people would describe, you know, your dad's car or your mum's car and they'd say oh she's she's a little bit cold this morning it might take a little bit of time to start her up like we we personify inanimate objects in that way don't we everything thomas the tank engine has a face he's a tank engine with a face he doesn't need a face he's a tank engine but lest we decide to do it
1: yeah i mean the face makes makes a difference i mean just put a pair of eyes on something and then people will feel like they're being watched and uh you know uh if that thing with the pair of eyes can also move in a functionally autonomous way, uh, can behave in a way that seems intelligent to us, then again, you're going to have all, all your sort of responses that have been programmed into you by evolution over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. They're going to be triggered even if you think to yourself, OK, it's a robot. Someone painted eyes on it. They wanted me to respond <laughs> in this way. Uh, but you can't help it. And and as I said, it's not just uh, it's not just lay people, it's experts, too. I mean, one of my colleagues, uh, Joanna Bryson, who argues that, uh, I mean, in her way of putting it, robots should be slaves, uh, meaning that, you know, there are things that we can buy and that we can own and they're created to be uh, you know useful for us. Uh, And so, well, you shouldn't treat any person like this because that would be a slave. However, uh, in the case of a robot, I mean, you have this, on the one hand, you're responding to it uh, as if it's a person, but... uh, you know, it's something that you buy and sell. It's been created for human use, uh, and so I mean, what she's arguing is that we should design robots in such a way that we don't have these responses. The problem, of course, being that a robot doesn't have to look like a human. It doesn't have to look like an animal. Uh, I mean, there are these interesting stories uh, about uh, military robots. but I mean, they look. Some of them look like I don't know, vacuum cleaners or uh, lawn mowers. Uh, but, you know, they, they're part of the, the team. Uh, the soldiers become attached to them. Uh, there was one robot that uh, helped to you know, find an, uh, bombs in the battlefield. And, of course, eventually it you know got blown up by a landmine or something like that. Uh, the soldiers wanted to fix that particular robot. They didn't want a replacement, not even a better one. Uh, eventually it was destroyed beyond repair. And then they gave it a you know, military funeral. They wanted to give it medals of honor etc so you can get very attached to a robot even though it doesn't look like a person like a human Uh, i mean that robot didn't even act like an animal or a human but nevertheless they got really attached to it so it's it's fascinating
0: didn't we've two other examples from your book one is a robot got to meet the queen of denmark and then another Uh, one was given honorary citizenship in china or south africa or something
1: yeah, so the examples are right. Uh, the country is wrong. So the the one that got to meet the Queen that was uh, here in the Netherlands, where I am. Uh, so this was a robot uh, called Amigo, uh, who is uh, or well, which is I should perhaps say it's an it. Uh, it's a medical care robot. Uh, again, this doesn't look like a person. I mean, it, it does have a head and it has sort of arms. And so uh, the former university I worked for was developing this robot. And so when the Queen came to visit, uh, this robot. Uh, gave the queen a bouquet of flowers and and asked the queen, what's your name? And the queen sort of immediately responded by accepting the flowers and and saying her name. Uh, And uh, I mean, none of the students at the university got to meet the queen, only this robot. And uh, (laughs) the, The other one was Sophia, the robot, and the country was Saudi Arabia. And so this, I mean, this has been quite controversial. So Uh, This is a robot that, uh, unlike the other one that I just mentioned, it does look like a human, so it has a very human-like face. Uh, The back of the head of the robot is transparent so that you can see the electronics in there, Uh, the idea is that no one should be fooled that this is a robot, but this is one where people really respond in anthropomorphizing ways. Uh, So this one has, um, you know, appeared in front of political bodies, the UN, uh, the Munich Security Council, uh, the British Parliament, I think, and um, has appeared on The Tonight Show with uh, Jimmy Fallon, uh, took a selfie with Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany. And uh, yeah, I mean, why exactly? Well, maybe it's the novelty. It's a, hum- a humanoid robot. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's been controversial. It's a very fascinating example of people reacting in these ways.
0: There's a couple of terms that you've used so far, talking about it being an agent, it having agency. Um, What are the premises that we need to understand before we can get into this conversation about robot human ethics?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So those are some technical terms indeed. So uh, agency is something that philosophers such as myself, uh, we, we love to talk about it all the time. Uh, I mean, of course, one problem is that others such as uh, software developers and uh, I mean, people developing medicines, I mean, sometimes to talk about what's the active agent or ingredient and so on. uh, On the most general level, an agent is something that can act uh, or react to the environment uh, in a more or less predictable, intelligent seeming, interesting way. Uh, of course, there can then be different kinds of agents. And so, uh, I mean, a very simple, I don't know, insect is a is sort of agent because it interacts with the environment in a goal-directed way. Uh, but it's, it can't, you know, I don't know, have a conversation. Uh, whereas, you know, you and I are agents that can have a conversation such as this one. Uh, you know, you do something, and uh, so let's say I don't agree with it, I might try to hold you responsible, you might defend yourself, uh, thereby exercising a much more advanced form of agent, an and insect, uh, you know, that maybe bites you, doesn't, you know, you might just, I don't know, I'll just kill it and immediately, don't think that it deserves any kind of uh, chance to, or opportunity to sort of explain itself. Um, I, mean, I mean, in the class of human agents, you have anything from infants I mean, they can't really do anything, I mean, but they're, they're learning <laughs> over time, they become more and more advanced agents. And so uh, one question then that arises is, could a robot be some, for, some form of agent? Um, I mean, okay, well, maybe before we get too, into it too much, but that, that's the idea of agency, like the ability to uh, sort of interact with the environment in a goal-directed way, uh, perhaps being able to talk or converse with other agents perhaps being able to take responsibility for what one is doing, being able to make decisions, make plans, and and so on and so forth.
0: What are the, are there any other words that we might encounter over the next 50 minutes or so that need defining before we get into it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I already mentioned the word uh, anthropomorphize. To anthropomorphize something is to attribute sort of human-like qualities to it. we kind of already explained that but that's a key word Uh, i mean maybe we should say something about what a robot is Uh, i mean obviously it's a everyday term and as it happens uh, it was introduced uh, this the term robot 100 years ago uh, in a play Uh, so this is a term unlike artificial intelligence that was that uh, is a term that scientists came up with robot uh, is a word that comes from a czech word uh, and i I'm not going to to get tempted to pronounce the Czech word, but it's a Czech word that's been sort of changed into a a noun. Uh, It was a a verb meaning, I don't know, to to perform forced labor or something like that. uh, And then uh, turned into a a noun in in a play about robots, uh, about artificial human beings that are created to serve humans. That's the origin of the term. I think these days, uh, I mean, when we think of the term robot, we think of a, maybe like a metallic human-like shape. That would be the paradigmatic robot. Uh, but uh, if, however, we look at sort of real-world robots that are useful to anyone, that people actually uh, are interested in uh, in terms of buying and selling them, uh, it would be maybe something like a Roomba vacuum-cleaning ro- robot, uh, a self-driving car. I mean, that's, that's a very hyped uh, robot um on so, so a lot of these functional robots i mean robots in logistics warehouses moving boxes around they don't look like humans they don't look like the paradigmatic robot out of science fiction like c3po and star wars uh so those are two different kinds i mean the, the silvery metallic one the, the ones from real life that look like boxes with arms etc and then uh, there's robots such as sophia that the one that we already talked about uh I mean, made to look like a human, made to act like a human. Uh, Like, what do do all these things have in common, you might ask? Uh, Well, okay, so here, people that work on this, uh, sometimes they don't even want to give a definition because there's so many things that we mean when we talk about robots. But uh, if one were, so, so to speak, forced to give a definition, people would sometimes say something like, it's a machine with some degree of artificial intelligence that has some... That, of course, is already a technical term that also has some functional autonomy, another technical term that means that the machine can operate on its own for some period of time without direct human interventions. Uh, And uh, so it's basically a machine that can do something (laughs) that uh, seems to be intelligent. That's often what people uh, mean by robots. I mean, sometimes people talk about what they call the, let's see if I can remember the, the sense plan act definition of robots it can sense the environment it can plan a response and then it can carry out that response take action that's another definition people sometimes use but i mean from my point of view i think it's better to just talk about different examples of things that people call robots and then ask i mean for example do they have agency of some interesting sort do people anthropomorphize them is that good is it bad and so on yeah
0: Mm, i mean even if we roll the clock forward nanotechnology probably over the next hundred years is going to be big and what do people say tiny little robots that's what they that's what they call them right so yeah from from the grand scale to the smallest those are the, the definition and the boundaries of what it means is uh is going to continue to get blurred so you lay out an argument quite early on in the opening chapter your argument would you be able to take us through that
1: yeah, so this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about early on about how people respond to robots. Uh, again, we are um, uh, we are equipped with a brain and a mind that you know, developed over th- hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, that's sort of a, a multi-purpose uh, organ <laughs> or capacity that we have uh, that to some extent has, has prepared us to, to build robots. I mean, we we are creating ourselves, but it doesn't necessarily prepare us to respond well to robots. Uh, And sometimes uh, we will become maybe too attached to robots. We will trust them too much. Uh, One part of our mind will say, it's just a machine. You know, it it can, it's not intelligent. Whereas the emotional part of our minds will, will get attached to the robot. will trust it too much. Uh, And we will build, you know, technologies that, you know, have robotic and other elements that will, yeah, polarize us online, et cetera. So we, we have all these problematic responses to technology. Uh, I mean, online polarization, that's, that's, that's one thing. It doesn't have too much to do with robots, but that's just another example of how we react uh, in sometimes funny, sometimes dangerous, sometimes not very nice ways to the technologies that we have. And so uh, we face a kind of choice, I argue. Either we try to change the technologies so that they are better sort of suited uh, for us with our human nature. Uh, and typically that's, that's the right response because uh, you know, why should we change ourselves to sort of make ourselves more adaptive to technologies? But in some cases, it may actually be worth also asking, should we somehow try to change the way that we behave and the way that we think so that we are better adapted to interact with technology such as robots and AI? I mean, for our sake, I mean, maybe in the future, for the sake of the robots, if they get intelligent enough. I mean, some people already talk about the idea of maybe robots should have some sort of rights if they're intelligent enough, uh, if they awaken sort of social responses in people. So the the idea is that for our sake, we have to do something because we are exposing ourselves to so many risks when we are creating these technologies. Uh, And then two of the most obvious things we can do is to try to change the robots to make them better adapted to us. Or somehow train, try to change ourselves to make ourselves better able to interact with robots. But we, uh, in order to avoid the risks we are creating for ourselves, we have to do something or other. And so I'm kind of exploring both options uh, in, in, in this book that we're talking about. Uh, you know, at, at, Sometimes, as I said, the, the most obvious thing is to change the technology so that it's better suited for humans. But that might also make us uh, miss out on some of the benefits that we want. Uh, And I don't know if we want to jump into any particular examples at this point. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Throw some. uh, I mean, one that I spent quite a bit of time on and we already mentioned this is the self-driving car. Uh, So this is, uh, you know, why do we want or need self-driving cars? Uh, The typical answer is that people are not super good at driving. Uh, we drive sort of well enough that we don't you know uh, crash most of the time (laughs) but a lot of the time we do crash Uh, it's very dangerous Uh, we're also driving in energy not inefficient ways we're using up much more resources than we uh, you know need to because we you know we're accelerating in a kind of quick way and not braking gently etc so one can envision a more ideal and more optimal form of driving and that's where the self-driving car comes in it's supposed to be you know a car that's better at driving than a human drives in a more environmentally uh, friendly way, uh, killing fewer people along the the way, so to speak. Uh, And so it's a more optimal type of driving agent, if you will, to use that terminology again. Now, the problem is that if you have self-driving cars and human driven cars on the road at the same time, you get a kind of coordination problem because humans expect cars self-driving cars to behave like human driven cars and so uh, there have been a lot of i mean mostly minor crashes Uh, what typically happens is that people drive into self-driving cars because they think that they are going to be accelerating more quickly drive more aggressively but the average self-driving car today is sort of programmed to follow the rules like to the letter so to speak like never speed never drive aggressively etc but humans do all of those things and then some people have suggested. I mean I went to one uh, conference with uh, people advising the Dutch government about how to develop our sort of self-driving cars research program here in the Netherlands. Uh, some one person said, well, we need to adjust the self-driving cars so that they drive like human drivers do.
0: So they need uh, to inherit our bad driving they habits. Drive, they should speed, they should drive aggressively, <laughs>
1: uh etc. but I mean then in a way that you, you would take away all this you know, the, the, the benefits that are supposed to be there with self-driving cars I and mean, they should be drive less aggressively, keep, you know, follow the traffic rules and not, you know, drive like humans. Uh, and so this seems to be one of these cases where you do have an interesting choice. Should we try, like if we want to drive at the same time as there's also self-driving cars on the road, should we ad- adapt ourselves and our driving to these robotic uh, cars, uh, self-driving cars? Or should we make them adjust themselves to us? I mean, probably the best answer is some some sort of compromise where where both are adjusted to each other. But on the other hand, uh, it does seem that it would be good uh, if we drove in a more safe way. Uh, uh, of course, people differ a lot in how uh, much. Um, uh, so some people say, you know, within five years we're going to have fully automated, uh, super safe cars. And, you know, it's going to save, you know, thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands of lives that are killed by human drivers every year. Others say, well, actually, it's it's really quite hard to develop a fully self-driving car that would work in all kind of traffic conditions, uh, in all weathers, uh, who, that are able to, you know, interact with it, all kinds of environments, anything crazy that people do on the road. So the experts differ in how safe they're going to be. But, if we do accept the premise that eventually they are going to be safer than humans, uh, then it would be strange in a way to say, well, let's make them drive like humans so that we can you know have them adjust themselves to us so that it seems to me to be one case where we, we might want to investigate are there ways in which we can make humans drive more like robots I'll tell and,
0: you an interesting yeah. example that I remember hearing last year on a podcast Someone was talking about the social habits that were being learned from people using voice control on devices like Alexa and Siri and they were saying that young children there was a fear that young children and older adults uh, would begin becoming less polite and using fewer social norms when talking to people because you don't say hey Siri please turn on the light you say hey Siri turn on the light Um, and when you then port that behavior back across into the social world into the human world you actually end up with it being very misaligned
1: yes so i mean that's just one example of uh, many of where people worry about uh the robots would sort of inspire certain behavior on the part of the humans interacting with them and then that behavior would then sort of carry over to the to to humans and uh i mean another example which we might talk about uh, would be the sex robot uh there uh one of the biggest criticisms that have been raised against them from a sort of feminist point of view is that well uh, people will start treating sex robots made to look like humans uh, in a very objectifying way in a rude way in a kind of not at all uh, the sort of nice way that we would like sex partners to treat each other and then that attitude will be car- carried over to uh, humans even more than it is today so that people will objectify each other even more than they're already doing uh, so that's I mean, that's a different example than the, the, the Alexa or Siri or whatever. But it's the same same sort of argument that we will learn a certain behavior by interacting with these robots or robotic or other technologies. And then that behavior will sort of carry over into our interaction with human beings.
0: If a self-driving car kills someone, who's responsible?
1: Ah, uh, Yes, that is another topic that uh, in terms of... I mean, if, actually, here too, we have a bit of a technical term, responsibility. Uh, of course, it's, a, it's an everyday term. We hold each other responsible. We ask who's responsible. But uh, we sometimes don't know exactly what we mean, uh, or at least we don't know what the conditions are uh, that we sort of that lead our intuitions sort or of guide our intuition intuitive judgments about these things. Uh, a lot of philosophers say, if I'm to be held responsible for something, uh, I first have to be able to predict what's going to happen when I act or I have to understand my environment, you know what I'm doing. Uh, if I don't, you know, if I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what's going to happen, then in a way I have an excuse to, for, you know not doing the right thing. So that's sort of one condition. Another condition is I should be able to control, uh, you know, what I'm doing. If I lose control, someone puts, uh, you know, I come in there, I put some sort of drug in your drink that you have there and you sort of go crazy and start doing strange things. Uh, you know, you can say that, you know, you lost control of yourself because you were drugged or something like that. So you, know, you should be able to predict to know and understand your what you're doing and you should be able to have some control over it uh, that makes you responsible now if I am using a self-driving car uh, and I am not a very technical person, let's say I don't really know how it works uh, I mean I can say please take me to the grocery store and as the car is doing that it's you know hits and kills someone am I responsible well I didn't really understand what was going on I maybe I I had no direct control of it because, I mean, I, I maybe I said, okay, take me to the grocery store, but then everything that happened was, you know, done by the, you know, the, the computers in the car, the artificial intelligence, the, you know, whatever technologies are involved. So it was, would be strange to say that I am responsible uh, for what happened. Now, there are complications, of course. Let's say that I'm the owner of the car uh, and uh, I maybe signed a contract saying that if something bad happens, then I should be responsible. Actually Tesla uh, uh, they have well, not they don't have fully self-driving cars, but they have something that's called uh, autopilot, which is sort of a, a certain form of automation. And so they do have a contract with their customers and users of this automation that if you engage the autopilot then you are responsible. Tesla does not take responsibility for anything that happens. So this is this is one way of solving the problem. We just make a contract. A lot of people have responded to this particular type of example by saying like, well, actually Tesla built the car, they say it's safe uh, and they are benefiting a lot from having people buy. And, you know, actually, it's pretty expensive to get this upgrade to the autopilot feature. So. Since they are benefiting, maybe they should be held responsible. So that's another kind of answer. Uh, The first answer was, you know, whoever signed a contract agreeing to take responsibility. Another answer would be who benefits the most from the existence of this technology? Maybe, maybe Tesla in this case. Uh, Another kind of answer that maybe um, possibly would seem more fair. I mean, of course, these things might all align. So maybe I sign a contract and I benefit the most. But you could also ask, you know, who has the ability, to sort of, to update the technology, to to monitor monitor it and see what it's doing, uh, to maybe stop using it if it turns out that it's not very, you know, useful to begin with. And you know, you can create kind of a checklist. And uh, the well, the problem is that sometimes maybe one person can update it, another is monitoring what it's actually doing, a third person is in charge of stopping the the program of you know using this technology, so to speak. So we do get what is sometimes called responsibility gaps. Uh, that means that uh, there's a sort of a, you know, it's a feeling or a sense and intuition that someone should be held responsible. But uh, a lot of the conditions that we typically think that should, uh, should be fulfilled in order for someone to be responsible, I mean, whether it's control, whether it's knowledge, whether it's, there's a contract, etc. either they're not fulfilled or different people sort of live up to this criteria. And so, so that's that's a bit of a problem.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I went on to the MIT website that ethics, uh, the car trolley problem thing. The yeah, the Moral Machine website. Yeah, that's it. So it anyone that wants to feel uncomfortable for ten minutes, go on. To just Google <laughs> the Moral Machine, and a, an MIT website will come up, and you do a a little quiz, and you go left. You choose left or right. You basically choose who you want to kill. And um, you just consistently don't know what the best option is for that. Do you have any sense of why people are so uncomfortable around autonomous cars, even if in the aggregate they would save lives? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, good
1: question. So, yeah, let's let's say that uh, they save thousands of lives every year, but they will kill a few people because any technology will, you know, it'll stop working sometimes. Uh, you know, there will be some the tree falling over and it, like there you can't have any technology that's moving fast and is heavy and that it's percent safe it's impossible so they, they will sometimes kill people uh but as you said we can assume that they would just save a lot of lives and so on aggregate uh they might be doing better than human drivers even so the idea of being killed by a machine seems worse to people than being killed by a human of course it's not nice to be killed by a human however uh, we also have another impulse. Uh, So I talked about we want to hold people responsible. Another sort of intuitive impulse or feeling that we have is that we want to punish. (laughs) And of course, this goes back to what I talked about before. You know, our brains developed over long periods of time and we we develop these sort of attitudes and emotional reactions that we have. And uh, whenever someone is harmed uh, and it seems that could have been avoided we tend to want to find someone to blame and punish. Uh, and, you know, you, you, maybe you could say, I mean, I actually have a colleague who says, let's punish the self-driving car. Let's blame the car. But to the average person, this is not a very uh, satisfying idea because, uh, well, another colleague of mine, uh, Rob Sparrow, he argues that, well, uh, if you punish someone, you cause suffering to them to some extent. You make it life hard for them. But a car, a robot, they can't suffer, so you can't punish them in the the way that you would, you know, want to hold someone accountable in the sense of, you know, giving them a hard time. Uh, I mean, some people would then come back and say, well, that's that's one function of punishment, to sort of make the, the the bad people suffer. Another function of punishment is to sort of indicate to other people what not to do to deter them, and. Maybe if I punish a self-driving car, I could maybe deter other people from acting like the self-driving car. But it, I mean, it doesn't seem very uh, plausible. I mean, maybe you could deter other companies from developing cars that would behave in that way. Uh, yeah, but uh, so we, we again have this problem that you know who are who are going to punish, who are going to blame? We want to blame someone, we want to hold someone responsible, we want to punish someone. Uh, I mean, you might say actually, these are not very nice impulses that people have, uh, this fact that we have this sort of deep-seated you know, desire to punish people who cause harm. Maybe it would actually be better to, to, to try to remove that from our nature. And I, I mean, I have other colleagues, again, uh, people, you know, we philosophers, we like to explore different options. And so we always have sort of someone working the job of, you know, you go and, and investigate you know, whether we could. T- that would be a good idea. And so one of my friends uh, argues that, well, actually, we should try to take out these uh, retributivist uh, intuitions that we, we want to punish. That would be better. Uh, I mean, I guess my response would be that p- perhaps it would be better, but also good luck. I mean, that's it's not so easy because it's very deeply ingrained in, into our nature. So, I mean, I don't even know where you, where you would begin. Uh, some people would say, well, we do find that uh, some of the uh, medicines and drugs we take for other things that sometimes change our emotions and our responses. Uh, I mean, I believe I you talked with a friend of mine, Brian Arp, uh, he, he's interested in exactly this topic. And uh, one of the things that got Brian uh, interested in whether we can actually use uh, drugs to sort of control people's love lives and emotional lives is that it, it, it's been noticed that drugs for other things, such as depression, uh, et cetera, they sometimes affect our feelings and our attitudes, how trusting we are of others. And well, maybe if we discover some sort of uh, side effects of some drugs that would make us less uh, willing to punish or eager to punish people, maybe we can use that uh, Yeah, after someone has a crash with a self-driving car or is killed by a military robot or something like that to sort of um, to think about this, you know, what happened in a way that doesn't involve fi- wanting to find someone to punish. Wow. Could be. I mean, could be one way of going.
0: I don't know. <laughs> Tesla's going to have to supply you with some supplements, uh, an annual supply of, of tablets so that you can do that as well. You're so right. Yeah. The, um, the whole principle for why we have friendship and what it means to have rivals and what it means to have uh, reciprocal altruism and kin selection and all of these, it is, it's the foundation of what makes us human, that social element, Right. And, uh, yeah. yeah, to deprogram that, I think you're asking an awful lot. But on the flip side, there is something that feels awfully unfair. I mean, it's unfair to be run over by anybody, but it feels oddly unfair to be run over by a car. But that being said, I imagine that when cars first came out in the sort of early 1900s, there would have been complaints around, well, they're moving so quickly. Look at how many people they're going to kill. Horses would have been a much better solution. We, the horses on the road, yeah, they make a mess and, but they go slower. There's going to be fewer accidents. You want to put these cars on the road. That's going to cause more accidents. Or before the tube and the London underground were made, it's like, well, you know, if we, if we allow people to get on the tube, some people are going to fall in front of the tube and they're going to get killed. They're not going to get killed when they're walking on the street, especially if there's only horses and carts upstairs. So I wonder how much of it is a status quo bias. That's just simply people feeling uncomfortable getting out of inertia and interchange. I feel like that probably is a lot. We're pretty, that the reason that we're so good as a species is that we're adaptive, right? And we are incredibly quick at adapting. So when the new thing happens, we'll probably end up adapting to it. The beauty or the challenge I suppose that we have at the moment is that we can step into this programming globally. The, um, technological programming the societal programming the cognitive programming we can say okay we have the opportunity to choose what sort of a direction we would like to go down right now before we actually get there and we just adapt to whatever the hell's going on we can make the choice of the direction that we think would be optimal
1: yeah i mean i do think that there's a bit of a development in this direction i mean so typically what has happened in the past is that technologies are developed put out into society and then you know later problems are fixed uh, but uh, <laughs> Yeah. but then at that point in time i mean it's typically hard to fix things because you know the technologies they get getting ingrained into everyday life and they sort of almost recede into the background and we we don't even think of them as technologies anymore we just think of them as you know part of everyday life so even what we what's sort of called a technology you know or a robot or artificial intelligence it tends to be something that's new and a bit unfamiliar uh and uh but once it's you know taken on that sort of you know, part of our sort of human landscape of like the world we, we move in, then it can be pretty hard to change it because, I mean, just think of cars. I mean, uh, our cities are now, you know, totally planned, uh, you know, for, you know, where people have to park, where they drive, etc., and where you can walk and you cannot walk. I mean, that's changed over time. And so if, actually, if you look at old pictures of, you know, when the cars and roads, uh, what was first came into the cities, I mean, people were walking everywhere. Uh, biking random directions on the road. I'm actually, where I live in the Netherlands, they, they still do. But still, I mean, things change over time. But then it gets ingrained uh, and p- part of the sort of the, just the backdrop of our lives. And it's very hard to change. I do see more uh, a development now that there's so much discussion about uh, risks and fears related to AI and robots and things like that. So there's there is a move towards trying to put the ethical reflection into the design process itself. Uh, I mean, that, that's part of the reason why MIT has that website with the moral machine. Uh, they're trying to find out people's attitudes about self-driving cars before we have a lot of them everywhere. I mean, some people have responded that, well, you know, the self-driving cars are not going to be choosing between killing two grandmothers or one grandfather and, and, and two dogs. It's, you know, That's the sort of dilemmas that you get on that website that you talked about before. Uh, they're going to face very different kinds of challenges. For example, determining whether something is a person or a branch or something like that. And uh, the, the image recognition should be good enough that uh, it, a self-driving car could tell if something is, I don't know, like a, 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 just a shape that looks human from a distance or whether it's actually a human, maybe it's some sort of heat camera or something like that. So they, they need to know what their environment is like, and so uh, do they ever need to choose? You know, I'm going to drive straight and, and run over two grandmothers, or goes you know right and and you drive over three I don't know granddaughters, or left and, and to two grandfathers or something like that. I mean that might happen every now and then, not not very often, uh, but nevertheless, it, it's all part of this idea that we have to think about these ethical issues before we face them, and we have to somehow try to program some sort of ethical uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the compass, if you will, in, into the self-driving car or into the technology that we're going to be using.
0: It seems to me that you hit the nail on the head there that technology tends to move quicker than the legislation that catches up with it. Governments are these big lumbering behemoths that take forever to do anything, yeah. uh, whereas Silicon Valley can just get a product out and see what happens. We're seeing that with um Phone addiction at the moment. Everybody uses their phone too much because the tactics that are used by apps race to the bottom of the brainstem, and they're able to manipulate you in ways that perhaps, if we'd known, if we were omnipotent and had known in advance, we would have said, actually, let's not have that feature. Let's not allow infinite scroll. Let's not allow autoplay. Not to, let's not allow bings and bongs and TikTok generally. But it's out there, and now we need to play catch up. Um. One of the things that makes me a little bit more hopeful, at least for the self-driving car analogy, is that because the outcomes are so grave and newsworthy, I think that a lot of the companies are going to err on the side of caution. Like You do not want to be the company that's killed two people in the same city in the same week. Like You just don't because it's going to be so bad for PR. But the um, socialized costs or the externalized costs, should I say, of the technology being wrong with regards to self-driving cars is so obvious and newsworthy compared with the more slippy, difficult to define technologies like social media and stuff like that. Like you don't really see someone's mental health degrade or their sense of self-worth get worse over the over half a decade. You know like it's it's a lot harder to define and that person themselves you know if you're dead or alive well you don't know if you're dead you're just dead but you know if you're (laughs) dead or alive um, your family will know (laughs) precisely but whereas your family perhaps don't know the arrow of causation between you spending too much time on tiktok and you wasting your life um so i wanted i wanted to talk i wanted to talk about this for ages are sex robots ethical okay yeah from one thing to another uh yeah uh i mean just real
1: quick maybe about that case of self-driving cars killing people and the company doesn't want to kill two in in a week i mean it it is interesting to compare it with space travel Uh, the first time that someone went to the moon it was a world event like everyone was in front of the tv watching very carefully the second time smaller tv audience the third, and I think I don't remember how many times they've been to the moon, but I think it's maybe less than less than ten. I mean five, five maybe something like that. But each time it was a sm- less of a thing. Uh, and now when people travel to space, I mean it's not even on the news. I mean some sometimes when Tesla has a new rocket that they're trying out that crashes, that's newsworthy. I mean I think it just happened today as we're recording this. Anyway, but the same thing could happen I, I fear with self-driving cars crashing into and killing it's gonna people be so that normalized: it's going to we... be normal, okay, now it happened again so uh, I mean I would agree with you that at the moment it's you know world news when it happens, but that's something that we're probably going to see the same sort of development that it's going to be normalized and so they're going to have more leeway <laughs> to sort of kill people. So we
0: just but, need yeah. with all of this yeah. stuff we need to get out ahead of it, which is obviously yeah. why people like yourself who essentially just ask. A million different permutations of the same question indeed um, yeah. that's I mean, why we require ethicists
1: indeed and, and that does take us back to the question that you're uh, really wanting to discuss namely are sex robots ethical or not uh because this is a good example of a question where i mean there are prototypes uh that are being created and there are sex dolls that have some uh, features that they can move a little bit and that they have a sort of chat function so you can talk with it in the way that you can talk with Siri or Alexa that like we mentioned before but certainly the uh, sex robot that maybe one imagines one thinks about that just that concept like something that's very intelligent seeming that can really you know behave in a very human-like way doesn't really exist yet however there are plenty of people trying to develop them Uh, and uh i mean is there a market uh well there's clearly a big enough market that there are people that are developing them hoping to be able to sell a lot of them so there seems to be uh an attempt at supply and there seems to be some some amount of demand uh, but it's they're not quite there yet uh, and so here we have another opportunity to sort of start talking about the ethical side of things before it's a big big real world problem i mean, there again there are already prototypes you uh for some of them, there's even discussion whether it's a real company or sort of, or whether you can really buy them at all or not. I mean, there's one, uh, there's a website uh, that's called truecompanion.com. Uh, and they say on the website that you can buy a sex robot called Roxy, spelled with three X's. Uh, that can be, uh, as the website says, a loving companion that can you know, know your name, get to know you, uh, have orgasms, and, and so on and so forth. Uh I mean, you, I think you can put down sort of a, uh, you know, a make a payment and, and, and order one, but, uh, uh, it's one of those things where it's very hard to find people to say, yeah, I bought one and I enjoy it. And then you know, <laughs> go, please go ahead and interview me about my experiences with my sex robot. So, uh, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't people like that. I mean, uh, there is, uh, one person that I discuss in my book and that I'm almost become sort of friends with, uh, you know, over time, I'm, who calls himself dave Cat. uh he lives together with not sex robots but but with a few sex dolls and he has done a lot of media appearances uh you know in all sorts of media on tv podcasts etc where he talks about how he lives together with his sex dolls Uh, and so there are are people like that that you can interview and, and talk about you know their experiences with these products but most mostly it's it's hard to kind of get uh uh, beyond sort of anecdotes and, uh, you know, imagining what could happen. And so that that is where we are. And like you said, ethicists such as myself, we're kind of imagining all sorts of scenarios and asking which, you know, seems best from the point of view of values such as consent, uh, objectification. Uh, will this make people uh, less good at interacting with human partners, et cetera, et cetera. And like I said earlier, uh, really uh, the main issue that people worry about so far is that uh, sex robots will sort of inspire people to have uh, strongly objectifying attitudes towards sex partners to make to sort of make their empathy go away because there's literally no mind or subjectivity there on the other side for you to be sensitive to Uh, and so one worry would be that one keeps interacting with this robot uh, and then, uh, you know, stops caring about, uh, you know, the the feelings uh, of the other, uh, whether they consent to what you're doing, uh, et cetera, and then that you would sort of carry over that behavior to a human. Interestingly, though, I mean, if you take someone like uh, Dave Cat, this person that I talk with again, I mean, if you look at the way that he talks about his sex dolls, It seems to be very respectful. Uh, He says in one of the clips that I I watched with him when he's being interviewed, you know, I wouldn't want to treat her, uh, the the sex doll, like a thing. I won't. It's a person. Uh, So it certainly seems possible, on the other hand, to have people who would. And like we said before, people have these social attitudes towards robots. You could ask them, well, what if we could design sex robots in such a way that they would actually not trigger sort of objectifying bad attitudes, but they would actually kind of stimulate, you know, train people to be, maybe even become better at interacting with other humans. Uh, you could imagine someone who feels, uh, you know, uncomfortable about their, you know, performance in that domain and that who wants to train themselves, maybe get to know human anatomy better. They're... Embarrassed about doing that with another person, but perhaps a sex robot could serve as a kind of educational tool for them, a sort of teacher. I mean, that's, this is something that others are also think, thinking about. You know, what, Not only what are the bad possible consequences and risks, but also what are the potential benefits. I mean, take another case. Let's say that you are, someone is the victim of a sort of sexual assault or rape or something like that. Uh, and that they feel extremely uncomfortable uh, around uh, human sex partners, but they want to get back into you know, sort of the, the sexual uh, world, so to speak. Maybe a, a robot uh, that would you know, do whatever they want it could be a way of becoming comfortable again with having sexual interactions with other agents. And that could be a sort of stepping stone towards uh, returning to having sex with humans. That's a, 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 that's one possible thing that people say it would, make, would be an argument in favor of having them. Another would be, well, let's say that there's someone who really can't find a sex partner. Maybe people around them, they don't find them attractive. Uh, they just have some sort of impossible personality. I don't know. So they really can't find a sex partner, but they still have a deep longing to have sexual interactions well maybe for them uh, a sex robot would be better than nothing uh that would be that's another argument that i've seen for why sex robots would be ethical rather than unethical and actually ethically required that we should try to develop them so uh it, it certainly seems a bit something that there are arguments on both sides
0: to me i struggle <clears throat> i haven't found a compelling argument um that says it's unethical Uh, to use sex robots not personally i just haven't been convinced by any of them yet i understand that we don't want to train people to go out and behave in bad ways but those externalized uh sort of costs i i don't think that they're going to happen all that much i wouldn't be too concerned about it and outside of that i don't really see anything that's that compelling to um to stop it from happening however there will be a lot of people listening who may disagree with me so i would be interested to see in the comments below what what yeah. everybody what everybody thinks um well i mean let, let me give you a case that's maybe the the, the most difficult case uh hit me uh, i'm excited yeah. yeah
1: yeah well let's see if you, you stay excited <laughs> so yeah sex robots are made to look like children uh that would be the case where a lot of people feel uh that that it crosses the line so they might say okay if it's a sex robot that looks like an adult human being well, a human being, that's another thing. So the two, <laughs> the two of the yeah. cases that people have been concern about are ones that are made to look like, I don't know, animals, a, a dog, let's say, or uh, especially, I think, I mean, a more serious example is a, a sex robot made to look like a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, there too, though, uh, you have people who argue, uh, not implausible, I would say, that, well, let's say that someone is a pedophile and they they do recognize that it's wrong they think that it's wrong to have sex with children and yet they can't control i mean they they can't there's no conversion therapy let's say and so the only physical outlet so to speak would be to have sex with either a child or a robot looking like a child maybe it's ethically good if someone you know takes the the goes for the robot rather than the the human child uh so it's, it's been suggested that it could be a kind of therapy tool uh, some would then say, well nevertheless there seems there's something sort of inherent or repugnant, there's a sort of moral taboo that we should respect, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So this would be the case where maybe uh, I, I don't know how you feel about that case, but that, yeah uh, that's so one uh, where...
0: oddly, I had this is gonna sound so odd. I had a three hour conversation about the ethics of sex robots uh, and at least half of it was talking about this example as well. But it was on a plane out to Dubai. So there was only one person that could obviously hear understand English in the in the vicinity and this poor girl must have been thinking what am i listening to for the entirety of this journey um my mind ever since i, I was seeing a girl at university who i uh, was doing medicine and was very very much into medical ethics and she completely changed my view of how I saw paedophilia, the difference being between paedophilia and child molestation. And that's a, a distinction that I think a lot of, sadly, because the way that we use those words, they're used interchangeably, but they're not the same. Um The first sort of thing to understand was that People do not control what they are attracted to. They have no conscious control over that. This has been shown in fMRIs and also in arousal response. You show someone every sexual situation under the sun with not children, nothing happens. You show them something with children and everything happens. And the reverse happens too. People can't control what that happens. Okay, so what that means is that there are some people who are brought into this world cursed, knowing that their sexual proclivity is disgusted by society, no one. they're terrified to reach out for help, all of these sorts of things. Now, if it would appear that if we find out that upon bringing in sex robots, the externalities of someone using a sex robot seems to bleed that behavior out into the real world, then we have quite a big problem. If the reverse happens, and it seems that by using the sex robot, we actually get a decrease in that behavior out into the real world, and I don't know what is more likely, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a behavioral psychologist, I don't understand sort of what would tend to happen there. Um, but you could actually imagine a, a world in which you would reduce human suffering by basically giving someone what is ostensibly a vibrator or some sort of, you know, what's the difference between a, is an odd question to ask, but what's the difference between a very small vibrator and a small child sex toy that would be used by a straight female who had that sort of a proclivity. Like, really, we're just getting back to anthropomorphizing. We're bestowing some sense of agency onto this being, especially if it, you're talking about a sex doll, which literally has no inner workings at all. It's a fascinating... Like, I, I think about this far more uh, <laughs> than, I, than I'd care to admit because I just find it... I, I find the these things where the... Um, the precipice on both sides is incredibly steep. I enjoy thinking about that because it makes me be very rigorous with my thinking. And I hope that everyone that's listening kind of feels the same. This isn't here to make us feel uncomfortable. It's here because it's an interesting and rigorous discussion around something which obviously has some pretty grave ethical implications. What's your opinion? Do you have a a personal stance on this? Uh, Well, I mean, this is actually something that I'm thinking
1: about at the moment and and working together with a colleague on on an academic article about this. And so, uh, so I don't, I don't have a settled uh, opinion about it yet because we're we're grappling with this issue. I mean, one difference between the the child sex robot and this small uh, sex toy uh, that you were talking about that doesn't look like a human uh, would be the symbolic uh, difference in terms of uh, one symbolizes, uh, you know, nothing maybe as the the sex uh, toy, let's say, whereas the other symbolizes a child. And so depending on how much uh, importance one puts on symbolism, one might go different directions here. So if you think that uh, it's somehow disrespectful towards human children to you know create and buy and sell uh, a robot that looks like a child that people want to have sex with, if you think that I mean that's enough of a problem uh, you know out of respect for human children, you shouldn't make money let's say off of this mm. uh then you might have a problem with this uh however let's let, let's say that it's not i mean it's, it's it's some sort of therapy tool that's created not for profit uh and that it's you know highly regulated or something like that and so there's not sort of a commercial market for it uh, then that symbolism argument of sort of making money off of this maybe go, goes away a little bit uh, and it may, may might become more acceptable but I think this is one of the things where, you know, you can imagine uh, it being more or less unethical. Like, let's say that, you know, if you're, you come up with this idea, of, I want to make money. I'm going to start creating uh, and selling for very, you know, big prices uh, child sex robots. You do seem, uh, I mean, not you, but the person who would have that idea, they they seem at the very least insensitive in their attitudes. and uh, they, they, they seem to be open to moral criticism, but uh, if someone, however, had this idea that well maybe you can save one or more uh, children from being molested by creating a sort of therapy tool that can be uh, offered to uh, you know people with pedophilia pedophilic uh, desires so to speak uh, in a sort of controlled setting, well then uh, you seem less open to this the same sort of criticism. So well,
0: I, we had um, during my discussion with Brian Upp. He was talking about people taking, people who are pedophiles taking SSRIs to dampen down their libido. Um, The external effect that you get in both situations from that, hopefully, if we can roll the clock forward and get the particular therapeutic tool uh, use out of a child sex robot that we want, um, the same externality occurs in both situations that you have less of a predation worry from this particular subgroup right the difference that i can see is in one of them the person actually gets to proceed through life normally and i know the people that listen to this show are incredibly balanced normal but i know that there is that emotional well they the freaks they should just be locked up it's like oh like you're not a, you haven't seriously ethically thought about this problem and you don't understand like empathetically what's going on um i I wonder what happens when you scale this sort of thing up to society wide because inevitably the loudest voices are the ones that that are heard, and some of those are going to be you know if you were a survivor of child sexual abuse, finding out that child sex dolls and maybe this one maybe this one looks like you looked when you were a i mean we're getting into some very yeah. uncomfortable water as we get through there, so yeah I um. I wonder But where... again, I, like
1: let, let's take that person, uh, and if they know that this is done for the sake of not having if this happen to other children, and it's not done to make big bucks, you know, like mm. uh, maybe it becomes more acceptable to them. But nevertheless, I mean, of course, they're going to be emotionally, you know, uh, going in different directions because maybe on the one hand they think that well, if it can have someone avoid ha- having happened to them, what happened to me, that's good. At the same time it can, might seem deeply offensive and it might seem as some sort of acceptance and normalizing of something that was really traumatic and bad
0: for them so i can certainly imagine it's so difficult man it's going so, different directions so messy um you talk about robot rights and we mentioned right at the top about making robots slaves should, should we should we make robot slaves um yeah, uh, I mean, some people have responded
1: to that uh, thesis by saying that we shouldn't use we shouldn't use that t- terminology because it brings up uh, uh, ideas about uh, you know people making some others into their slaves and that whole mentality is, is should go out the window. I mean, n- nothing should be a slave, neither a robot nor a person. But uh, I, you know, in defense of my colleague Joanna Bryson, she never meant to sort of be enthusiastic about this past slavery or anything like that. The idea was just that. Since people are going to be owning, buying, and selling robots, and, and I mean, that's one feature of slavery like, you know, you, you can buy and sell the slave, and uh, the slave is there to be useful to, you know, to, to, to the owner. The robots are going to have these properties. And so, her suggestion was it's best to create robots that wouldn't uh, be morally ambiguous for people so that they wouldn't feel a sense of responsibility. So, like, you, you make the robot look like a box, uh, you know, it doesn't have eyes. It doesn't sort of generate a sense of responsibility. That's the best situation, because then we don't have to have these worries about robot rights. However, for some purposes, uh, it might be more efficient to have a robot that actually does generate these social attitudes. Uh, There is one robot uh, that is being developed for treatment of autistic children. And so the idea is that uh, for some children with autism, they have trouble... Uh, engaging with other humans uh, because they find it overwhelming. Uh, so if you have a sort of a, a robot that looks like a simplified human, uh, this actually has in some experimental studies been you know, shown to possibly work. The, the child sort of opens up and then even turns to the experimenter and, and sort of points at the robot and say, like, can I look at this? And that's already a nice step forward. Now, for, for that sort of ter- therapy tool, uh, you would need the robot to look a little bit hu- human-like. Uh, because, you know, that's part of the idea that it should look a little bit like a human, etc. Now, take that robot, and then let's say that after a day of experimentation, you know, you take the robot to another room, and then you take out, like, a, I don't know, a baseball bat and start hitting it, or, you know, uh, you, uh, you know, do something else to it that doesn't seem to be sort of uh, very fitting. Uh, that can seem, I don't know, not... At, again, you if it's not directly wrong, it can seem, like, insensitive, let's say. Uh, you... You know, something that's been developed for this purpose, that if you're treating these children, it should be treated maybe in, in a more respectful sort of way. Uh, is that to say that the the robot should the this therapy robot should have some sort of rights? Well, uh, it is to say rather that out of res- again out of respect for those children that are being involved in this treatment, maybe one should maybe treat the robot in a. I don't know, dignified, respectful way. Mm, Uh, And then again, you can go to your example from, let's say that I I have a robot that looks like you. uh, And then I mistreat that robot. I mean, in a way that can seem as like some sort of attack on you. So maybe again, out of respect for you, I shouldn't, uh, either I don't make a robot that looks like you, perhaps the best option, or if I do, (laughs) for whatever reason, you know, there should be some, maybe some limits, uh, how I treat this robot out of respect for you. Uh, But this is still just a question of, you know, how can we behave in a way that's respectful towards other humans? The real question would be, you know, would there be any circumstances where, out of respect to the robot, you know, you should treat it well in some way? Well, I mean, even today I saw on Twitter some uh, video about some scientists that claim that they have created robots that can feel pain uh there's another uh not the same team i think and a uh, japanese team led by uh professor asada i think is his name uh who also tries to create robots that can feel pleasure and pain because that uh, the idea is that uh, they can learn in the way that infants do you know, before we learn language we learn in an emotional sort of way uh you know you might ask does it even make sense to think that a machine a robot could feel pleasure or pain if you believe that they are achieving this in, in their research and i myself am skeptical then you do a, get an interesting si- situation because maybe the robot is not very intelligent but it has you know the capacity to feel something in some sense or other uh here too you might start thinking like well better be safe than sorry so let's not cause too much unnecessary pain to this robot uh, this, this of course dep- uh, it's dependent on whether you think it makes any sense to say that a machine could feel pain. Which yeah, really I pain.
0: think that's, that's where the sort of slippage is at the moment, right? Because inevitably you have a reward function in most sorts of circuits. There is an outcome that you want. That's how, you know, uh, alpha go Zero worked, that there was an outcome it wanted and it learned. Essentially, it was like, if you've done this, then great. This is the sort of direction that we want you to go in. Now, if I just decide to recategorize that as pleasure... And not that as pain. You're like, okay, but there is no phenomenological experience that it is going through, that the machine is going through, which causes the suffering, which causes the second order metacognizant experience of the suffering itself. To be able to say, I mean, to be able to say, as far as I'm concerned, whoever it is that's on Twitter, we have created a robot which is able to feel pain, is to say we have created consciousness. Because I don't think that you can feel pain without consciousness any like i whack a rock with a stick this, the rock and the stick both aren't in pain because neither of them have consciousness um yeah i'm i'm unsure around that for for me personally i think that treating robots as if they are just a scaled up version of a macbook makes the most sense at the moment now giving them uh, you you talk about it at the beginning of the book giving them citizenship and you slipped up at the very very beginning a freudian slip to say uh who who is as opposed to yeah. it is right. um and th- this gets into kind of i guess the the through thread that we're talking about here just how misaligned we are when we deal with any sort of robot and the more that these robots can look and act like humans the more and more our behavior is going to be modified toward them. That's going to have some externalized consequences to our interactions with other humans. There's also um, concerns around whether or not those robots themselves should have some sort of right, some sort of sense of anything else. For me, I don't think that that really is a... It might be a concern to think about for the future, but right now I don't think that it is. Um, But yeah, it's going to be... It must be for yourself in this industry right now it must feel like a very interesting and exciting place to be. You know, the next sort of 20 years or so is we're going to see some insane changes. Yeah,
1: I mean, part of this because, as I said, there are scientists who claims that, who who are saying that they are creating robots that can feel pleasure and pain. I mean, I share your skepticism about whether they have achieved that goal. But certainly there are people at universities, you know, they're trying to do this. They claim that they can do it. Uh, there are people developing sex robots, uh, self-driving cars, all sorts of interesting and seemingly uh, science fiction-like uh, things. But you know, people are actually doing it, uh, and it's very clear that there are interesting uh, you know, philosophical, ethical questions about it. So yeah, for people
0: like me, it's great. Sven, thank you very much for today. Humans and robots, ethics, agency, and anthropomorphism will be linked in the show notes below. If people want to check out any more of your stuff, where should they go?
1: uh well i already mentioned twitter and i think that's uh, a good place i mean so i whenever i you know do something like this i appear on a podcast or i, I write a book or an article i always put it there to so sort of a, a, to advertise it so that's a good place if people want to know what i'm doing
0: perfect and thank it's, you very it's much. just like at sven nyholm it'll be linked in the show notes below Sven, thank you so much man well thank you